0: Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So are you ready to recover from reality?
1: Jane Elliott is similar to Robin D'Angelo, white woman doing racial justice work, racial education work. And there's a clip where she's asking, you know, a room full of white people in auditorium for someone to stand up or raise their hand if they would be happy to trade lives with a black person in America. If they'd be happy to Uh, you know, experience the way of life of being a black person today and not a single person raised their hand. And I highly doubt that a single one of your listeners, if you are a white woman listening, that you would happily give up being a white person today to be a black person pre-watching George Floyd. Highly doubt that. And there's a reason for that because you know Deep down, you know, you might've been sheltered, you've been conditioned, you've benefited, but you know that the way that black people are treated in this country is very different than Mm. how white people are treated.
0: That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Taylor Nolan. If you don't know Taylor, she was on The Bachelor and then she went on to be on Paradise where I believe she walked away engaged, but is no longer she's a therapist. She is training to be a sex therapist. And I'm lucky enough to call her a friend a few months ago. Well, it was more than a few months ago because I've been in my house for a few months, which made me think of that TikTok song. Do y'all just sing TikTok songs in your head all day now? Because I certainly do. The one that's like bored in the house and I'm in the house, bored, bored in the house. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been in my house for several months. No, Taylor and I recorded probably back in uh, mid-January and I was on her podcast, Let's Talk About It. And then in April, she came on mine. And if you guys haven't caught on yet, I've been batching my content lately, which I'm honestly done doing. I have batch content through November, um, which is why we kicked it up to five episodes a month now. But anyway, I'm so lucky to call Taylor a friend because I absolutely adore her. And I didn't know if this was the right call or not, because I know that black women specifically are being bombarded right now with media requests. But I reached out to her literally yesterday, which is the day before this episode is due, which is today. It's 11pm at night right now. This was due at five o'clock. But per usual, I am running late. And I reached out and I was like, Hey, would you be willing to come on the podcast and do an additional segment on racism? And I'm so glad that I did because I had so many aha moments. And I know that you guys will too. So here's how it's going to work. We're going to do this segment with Taylor. And then we're going to play her main episode. And so with that, here is Taylor's episode. And I hope that you guys enjoy. So grateful that we have the friendship that I can just text you and be like, Hey, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really want to dive back in. Like we recorded this episode weeks ago. We talked about alcoholism. We yeah. talked about sex. We talked about being a sex therapist. We talked about The Bachelor. None of that shit matters right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> None of it matters. And, I, and I've been saying since the inception of the, this podcast, people need to wake the fuck up. Literally, mm-hmm. that's what this podcast was made for. The slogan is yeah. for people who want to wake the fuck up. The time is now. There is no more time. Mm-hmm. We have to do the work. Yeah. So now I want to go back to that question because it does, it feels like we are going back. Yeah. Instead of moving forward, but are we really going back or is everything being videotaped now? So I think it feels like we're going back
1: for white people because I think in the perspective and in the daily lives of white people, it feels like racism is something in the past and slavery was in the past and that everything is rainbows and butterflies today. I think for Mm -hmm. black people of color that there have been some small steps forward, but it still feels like we're living in the past and that we're just watching history continue to repeat itself and that that really fucking sucks.
0: Yeah. I think There's a couple of things to unpack there. One, as a white woman growing up in a society of systemic racism, I think people have this idea and this belief, and I've touched on this before, that because you grew up in southern liberal Southern California, Mm -hmm. that in this bubble, that this doesn't exist. And I grew up in a family that, in quotes, didn't see color and everybody is equal and was super spiritual but was bypassing the racial work, right? And I didn't really wake up to this work until about five years ago. And, mm-hmm. and I actively started doing this work. Now, the first time I could vote was for Obama. Yeah. You know what I Same. mean? It's like Same. That's, that's where I'm at as a millennial mm-hmm. woman, right? Yeah. And so I kind of grew up with these beliefs of like, well, gay marriage is legal now and interracial marriage and blah, blah, not really understanding Mm -hmm. how systemic racism is so rooted in every aspect of our lives. We feel more divided than ever to me. Like, I think that as people of color, you've always probably felt divided, right? Because there's always been that undercurrent. And I don't think that the president is helping at all. In so many areas um, the statement is accurate. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I think the division is that division has always been there for black people that it hasn't felt like mm-hmm. we really have been included, that we've been accepted in certain parts of of life and of things and in society, but for the most part yeah. there's still a very obvious like no, I know my place. I know I'm the only a white person in this space and I know I know how how I'm supposed to show up right now in respect of everyone else's comfort yeah
0: so yeah we as white people have cherry picked that. we've cherry picked the parts of blackness that we deem as mm-hmm. acceptable yeah absolutely. we've sexualized it we I mean we created the Kardashian empire off of it mm-hmm. which is I'm sorry. Disgusting. Um, because there's really been no, they've come out against racism, which then we can go down the rabbit hole of Kanye, which is a whole mess, but they've never really said like, yes, we've profited off of black culture. And this is what we're going to do because I think that a lot more people would be like, okay, but so, so what are you going to do with that? Like, what are you actively going to do to help people of color with the millions and millions and millions of dollars that you've made off of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the step here is, is the action steps right now. A lot of companies are getting called out. A lot of influencers are getting called out. Mm -hmm. What are some of the action steps that you would like to see in both the corporate world and in the more, Influencer, podcaster, reality TV space.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the first steps that I would like to see from both the influencer space and the corporate world is that accountability that you did just touch on. Taking those steps to acknowledge and to take accountability for how you have benefited, of how you have upheld uh, white supremacy, Um, and honestly, one of the biggest action steps is like to do the research, like. To not continue going around asking people, you know, what books should I read? What things should I do? Like, we are all capable adults with Google. Like, <laughs> we can we can figure out that work um, for ourselves. So taking that accountability, sharing the growth, sharing that process, not just the, you know, parts of you donating to somewhere or, you know following another black influencer or, you know, sharing the mic with another black influencer, but, but this real acknowledgement and transparency around the mistakes that you're going to make, because you're going to say the wrong things. You're going to, you know, potentially share information that you might think is helpful. And you being an ally might actually be more harmful, might be a little tone deaf to just be open to that. So I think That transparency, especially for like white influencers, is super important and taking that accountability and and actually moving forward and showing up. In terms of like actual corporate stuff, you know, I've had some brands message me and be quick to jump of like starting immediately, amplify black content creator. And like I just talked about this in um this last week's podcast episode on on Let's Talk About It, where like a lot of these companies have not been safe spaces for black people to begin with. And then you want to capitalize and, uh, brand yourself by using our blackness that we yeah, then actually just, have.
0: Yeah. Can you just shut up about it? Like, just do it. It's like, yeah. you didn't want us
1: then. And we then suffer from that. And you then choose white influencer after white influencer after white white influencer over us and, or, you know, white model or whatever it is. And now you're like, oh, we really want to uphold your and blah, blah. And it's so, it feels like objectifying. It feels like you're being used. It feels like it feels performative and it honestly feels icky. Um, so I think for corporations, you know, brands, whatever, to actually really start working with black people, models, creators, you know, adding people to their team, whatever it is. Like you got to make that a safe space first. Like you got to actually from jump from kind of products you're promoting to the language you use, to the people on your team, make that start being a safe space and you know, it's this quick jump to like starting immediately, we're going to do this, this and that, and we're going to, you know, post every black person we've ever worked with. That's not helpful. And it's really like, it's a lifelong thing. It's not a week thing. It's not a month thing. It's not a just this year thing. This is history repeating itself for hundreds of years to where this is something I really, really hope to see brands, companies, corporations. take really seriously and add it to their daily life, add it to their company culture. And same for white influencers and white people in general, like this has got to be a value of yours for it to actually be sustainable. This cannot just be a hashtag. It has to be something that is incorporated into the balance of your daily life. Just like you you know, care about fashion and you care about rescuing animals and you care about environmental change. Like you also got to care about black people and people who have like suffered at the hands of our system, which to even take steps to care about that, you got to acknowledge how you've, how
0: you've benefited from Benefited from it. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about our partner for this episode, Thrive Market. What if I told you that you could get high-quality organic and non-GMO groceries delivered to your front door for a lot less than you're paying right now and help out families in need? That's what I'm doing since I discovered Thrive Market. As a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products that I love and my paid membership provides a free one to someone in need, Like a low-income family, teacher, veteran, or first responder, Thrive Market tailors to over 70 different diets and values like paleo, keto, or plant-based, delivering the highest quality organic and non-GMO food. They also offer clean beauty and bath products, pet staples, and non-toxic cleaning products. Plus, ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and so much more. I will tell you this week in my Thrive order, I got my favorite Siete chips and my Primal bars. I'm absolutely obsessed. Those collagen bars are everything. And as a member, I'm saving 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices and their carbon neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. Not only do I feel great about getting a deal on my favorite clean organic products, but I also feel great about helping to support families who need it most. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market is matching donations to their COVID-19 relief fund dollar for dollar. Thrive Market is working 24-7 to make sure members are getting their groceries delivered as fast as possible. You can learn more about their commitment to their customers and membership matching on their website. Try Thrive Market and become a member risk-free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash reality. Join today and you'll get up to $20 in shopping credit towards your first order. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash reality to start your risk-free membership and get up to $20 towards your first order. Thrivemarket.com slash reality. Now back to the episode. Hi there. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontesta.com. I think that while I've always been someone who's been in the camp of I'm going to be vocal and if you don't like it, unfollow me because you're not my fucking people anyway, Mm -hmm. a lot of people have felt scared, scared to say the wrong thing. I've said the wrong things. Mm -hmm. I've, I've fucked up. And, and that's okay. Week, and I
1: hope you continue to like be open and share that too, because yeah. that's, like, that's where the magic is. That's where the work is. That's where people are really going to learn and find you relatable in themselves, right? It's where a mistake is something that you might share that you think is helpful. That same person that follows you might've thought the same thing and
0: then been and, like, Oh, okay. That actually would have been fucking up. And also in the black community, there is difference of opinion so i shared the book white fragility people were like well you need to share books from black authors you can't share books just from white off okay so there's always and here's the thing and i want people to really understand this when i heard this is the first time in my lifetime that i heard these words and it shook me to my core that white silence equals violence period end of story It's, that is the truth that, that sums it up perfectly. We have been silent. We are the majority and we have been silent for far too long about the injustices and about the way that we have benefited from the system. And we have to do better now. We have to use our voices. We will fuck up along the way. There will be some people who have one thing to say about it. And some people who have another thing to say about it. Yep. In that moment where someone ripped me for sharing about that white book, mm-hmm. then it's up to us as non-people of color, white people. or So I share this. Then it's time for us. And I think I really want people to understand this. Instead of, and this is where white fragility comes in. Mm-hmm instead of going, Oh, this person just read me for this. So now I'm either going to a respond critically and harshly, or like, I just can't win or whatever it might be. Yeah. Take a moment, reflect, go. Okay. So what is my intention and how can I do better?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's uh, similar to like feminist movement, right? Like Someone will identify themselves as a feminist or will say, you know, that they really value female empowerment and they might think that to do that, that means you have to advocate for free the nip, right? And there might be a different person saying, oh, well, no, you know, we need to work on the wage gap. A similar thing when it comes to race, right? One Black person suggests one thing, a different Black person suggests a different thing. I think it's important for non-people of color, non-Black people to... Take in all of that and accept all of those as valid options, right? Yeah. And really ask yourself what was your purpose and why did you choose this specific action step or thing to share or whatever, right? Like I think in instances in this example specifically of doing something like Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. One of the reasons, even why I myself share that as a blessing is knowing that. Sometimes it's really difficult for white people to listen to black voices.
0: So... Isn't that sad? But I totally agree that her message really brings it home because it's coming from a white woman, which inspires me as a white woman to want to talk to my fellow white women now nonstop Mm -hmm. about this. And it... Which, Which on one hand,
1: yes, like that's a step to getting there. And I think... There is sadness in that statement, right? Of like this message, right? As valuable and valid as it is, is easier for white people to listen to coming from a white person than it is coming from a person of color or a black person. That there's a lot of sadness in that statement, but there's also a fuck ton of reality in that. So sometimes it is these baby steps, right? Of getting people to you know, okay, yeah, I can hear this coming from Rob. And oh, so then when this other woman of color says it, now I kind of get it because I did also hear from this other person, which in some weird fucked up way gives it more validity. So there's so many different things, right? Like you can share Rob and D'Angelo and then you can also say, yeah, you know, actually I do think it would be helpful as well to share, you know, from a, from a black stem author as well. And again, I think in this, a lot of people, as you said, you know, it can be a little stressful feeling like, I don't know what the right thing is. And the biggest thing I can say on this is just to not let it paralyze you. When you yeah. let it paralyze you and you let yourself get so overwhelmed and stressed out and beat yourself up over it, you are putting yourself back in that space of white silence equals violence. So-
0: I love what that quote that you brought up on a live last week about how shame leads to temporary action. And I think Mm -hmm. I've been so careful. All of my mom threads are all on social media, which have these groups of thousands of women are either all lives matter or black lives matter. All lives matter Mm -hmm. or black lives matter. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing all these really heated debates. And I took that to heart because first of all, I know it's okay. So first of all, I'm fucking mad. I've been mad well before George Floyd. I'm at my tipping point. I feel it. You know what I mean? Like just knowing what's been going on in this country since I kind of started to wake up to it about five years ago in my early twenties. And here's, you can take that anger and what I find is the most beneficial is to take that step back to reflect, to breathe, to not get heated, to keep people accountable, but to do Mm -hmm. so in a way that isn't shaming, because I do feel like there's a piece of that, like, okay, so an example is my friend who's like, well, I've I'm not racist. Like my parents weren't racist. We never owned slaves. Like we, you know what I mean? Blah, Sorry, blah, n- blah. Narrow, narrow <laughs> definition narrow, of equality, okay, yes. right? So like the only racist if you is, own slaves. Is that like, how it works? But this is like, you know what I mean? Growing in California, growing mm-hmm. up in California, going to diverse schools, not seeing color, the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where I realized, had I been like, well. Wow, you better sit down for <laughs> this one, Becky, because I'm about to school mm-hmm. your ass on mm-hmm. all of these things. Maybe she would have changed for a moment. But what I find is that through education and patience, and even with my mom, who is a 56 year old white woman who is, you know, super spiritual and believes that everyone should have equal I- rights. And this week I explained equity and equality to her and it blew her fucking mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but just having this dialogue and saying, I need you to watch the George Floyd video. Mm-hmm. I need it. She was like, I can't watch that. And I'm like, no, I, ne- I need you to watch that. I need you to see what is really happening. I need you to see the way that the police are treating people. I need you to see what's happening on the streets right now. I need you to see what's going on. Like, I really, I need you to witness this. I need you to see all of it. And doing it with her and sitting down and watching the video and crying together and feeling those moments of like grief. That is what creates long-term, massive, like, gut-wrenching, heart-opening shifts of, like, perspective. And so I'm hoping that this is a call to the 80-plus percent, because I know my demographics of white women <laughs> who listen to this <laughs> podcast, yeah. that you'll encourage each other to do this to watch documentaries like The 13th, to start not shelter yourself from Mm -hmm. the reality of what is happening, from the reality of the Black experience anymore and to really envision yourself in their shoes.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I have a lot of thoughts just around, you know, people watching the video or not in the video. And I really hope so badly. And I know it's not the case, uh, but it shouldn't have to take watching a man get murdered for you to care for you to want to advocate. Like, like we said, these things have been around. There've always been jokes about black men getting pulled over by the cops. So I'm, you might have circulated around a bunch, but Jane Elliott is similar to Robin D'Angelo, a white woman doing racial justice work, yeah. um, racial education work. And there's a clip where she's asking, um, you know, a room full of white people in auditorium for someone to stand up or raise their hand. If they would be happy to trade lives with a black person in America, if they'd be happy to, uh, you know, experience the person, the, the way of life of being a black person today and not a single person raised their hand. And I highly doubt that a single one of your listeners, if you are a white woman listening, that you would happily give up being a white person today to be a black person pre-watching George Floyd. Yeah. Highly doubt that. And there's a reason for that because you know Deep down, you know, you might have been sheltered, you've been conditioned, you've benefited, but you know that the way that Black people are treated in this country is very different than mm-hmm. how white people are treated. And, you know, seeing a video like George Floyd is traumatizing, absolutely traumatic. And the Black community has been dealing with that for years, hundreds of years, and not even having to be on tape, right? experiencing that within their families for generations, you know, their men getting locked up and put in jail and, you know, kids being raised without father. Like it just, it goes on and on and on. And it's so sad and disappointing that, and infuriating, frankly, that we don't actually receive proper education on black history in our schools. And when people are like, oh, I had no idea. Sometimes I want to ask like, do you remember learning about slavery in middle school?
0: Like, what did you think when you learned about when you learned about that? Like do, it's just not, such a whitewashed version of history. No, it's totally it totally you know people
1: going back and watching, you know, Malcolm X movies. Yes, it's important, I think, for white people to understand and to have their eyes open to the struggle and the pain that can sometimes be black, but I also hope that while you're exposing yourself to trauma of Black people getting murdered and brutalized, that you also can expose yourself to like Black love and like Black beauty and all these other things too that are not associated with this like trauma as well. (laughs) Because literally, our lives are just as valuable. And I think to speak to the shame piece that we were talking about a second ago is that this shame might cause you to react, right? You might have a gut reaction to this of feeling like you're a terrible person because you're white. So you're just gonna, you know, quick to act. And I think that's, A, that's not sustainable because it will in, in time paralyze you. And then your ego will try to defend itself against that shame of being a bad person where you will have that white fragility pop up. So, I think it's it's important that when you feel that shame come up and you have this like gut reaction to just want to like I'm just going to post this or I'm just going to say this or like, you know, whatever it is, that you like take a second and sit with that first. And when you respond, you share what that process was. Cause it's going to be a process. <laughs> You're going to feel some shit. And that feeling a little bit guilty is okay. That you might feel like, oh, you know, that was kind of fucked up when we were at the club and Jessica said the N word singing the, you know, Kanye and, you know, our other black friends sitting over there, like clearly seemed uncomfortable and I didn't say anything. And like, I do feel kind of bad now, you know, whatever example comes to your head, you can feel a little guilty for that. And you can feel like, you know, I was not the proudest of myself in that moment. How can I move forward in, in a better way? How can I practice being an ally? How can I be anti-racist? Well, that's your homework. That's, that's yeah. hopefully now what you feel motivated to do
0: with that little bit of guilt that's likely going to come up. Well, and I think that that's, you know, Brene Brown puts it so perfectly. Guilt is motivating; shame is crippling. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, if you're feeling that guilt, if you're feeling that sting, that burn, sit in it, sit with it for a little mm-hmm. while, and yeah. let it motivate you to do the work to become a better ally. You know, I think I think back to when Ashley Marie Preston all week it's been coming up because we've been seeing all these people like Hannah, Stasi, all of these people mm-hmm. getting called out. And mm-hmm. she talks about finding the nuance and the noise. Mm-hmm. And it's been really noisy lately. Yeah. It's been really, really, really noisy. And as white people, we're going to feel like we've fucked up and we have fucked up some mm-hmm. Worse than others. And this is not to say that Hannah or Stassi's behavior is at all acceptable because it absolutely no, they wasn't. Fucked up. They fucked up big time. I just hope that they know that it's repairable and that it's more than an apology. It's actual work. It's what am I mm-hmm. going to do to, to change this? I will say I got a little fucking pissy. And I know you have to go right now. Mm -hmm. With Stassi announcing that she's fucking pregnant and then breaking the fucking internet after this whole debacle, I don't think that that was at all, they should have been kept to yourself. That's absurd. But I'm just saying if you do fall short, if you do have a white woman or a person of color or a white man or a man of color confront you about these things, it's okay. Take a Mm -hmm. moment reflect and figure out what, what you need to do to do better.
1: Yeah. Just be open, which is a hard, hard thing to do. And is not something that many people are, are even practicing in their daily lives before all of this? So Mm, yeah, it's going to be hard.
0: It's gonna take time. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I'll leave a list of resources for people um, who are open to doing the work. I've been talking about this I, you know a couple years ago I watched that documentary the 13th that really mm-hmm. began to open my eyes. Yeah. I'm reading the books. I'm doing right now Rachel Cargill's uh, mm-hmm. online course which is incredible yeah. listening to black voices, educating yourself, diversifying, your feed, listening. Please don't go to all the black people right now and ask them for advice. Google. Mm-hmm. I hope that everybody who's listening to this and to this episode, which we recorded a few weeks ago, leaves mm-hmm. feeling inspired, knows that you can Google. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and yeah. um, and that you're actively doing the work. Yeah. Thanks for having me on for a little
1: follow-up. Um, I don't totally remember all of what we did talk about the last time or earlier on in this episode, but um, there's even parts of my time on The Bachelor that, you know, if you rewatch and you really actually consider, you know, how in America we view race and, and my role on the show,
0: it's, uh, there's little microaggressions and all kinds of things that I, come out in that <laughs> I didn't want to talk about the bachelor too much because I didn't want to insult you. And I feel like everyone's going like, what's it like to be a ba- black, uh, black bachelorette? Like yeah. what's it like to blah, 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 blah. And what about yeah. Hannah? And what about your thoughts about yeah. the first black bachelor that they just announced right now And all of these things? Like, yeah. but yeah. yeah, coming off as the angry black woman
1: the yeah it was educated but everyone likes to say I was condescending which was Condes- actually just tone mm-hmm. policing that's all that was was tone policing so <sighs> <yeah. laughs> I'm so I, I do have to leave but I mean we'll, we'll leave I, people maybe with the connection, <laughs> and maybe you can go back and re-listen to some of that with this in mind and uh
0: yeah, and yeah. take note about the you know I think as women we can relate to that of oh my god you must be on your period or whatever those microaggressions towards women now imagine mm-hmm. that amplified times a hundred for yeah. women of color so mm-hmm. you know when your boss goes oh are you PMSing that that pisses you yes. off um, imagine that times a thousand of all of the little things yeah. whether it's regarding your hair your body mm-hmm. hair your sexual My identity your skin whatever yeah. it might be so yeah I yeah. hope I uh, hope people can take a really good look and
1: reflect and how they actually perceive people of color and black people specifically um but
0: and hold yeah, these franchises for- accountable and these shows accountable mm-hmm. like we need to be saying like, I'm sorry, it is not acceptable that we've had, I don't even know how many seasons of The Bachelor there's been and Bachelorette, but like 16, like over 20. 20, and there's been now one Black Bachelor, like it's 2020, that this has is no longer better, yeah. ac- acceptable. Like you need to be okay with losing bands and losing followers in order to do the fucking right thing. So that was amazing. And I hope you guys had as many takeaways as I did. And now here is Taylor's main episode. I was saying that that, you were like one of the first X or reality stars that Mm -hmm. I've ever sat down with. And it was so nice after we finished recording, we ended up just chatting for like 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so nice to connect because I don't think people really understand the um trauma experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that. Um unless you've lived through it. Unless you've actually You know, and I hear all the time, like, well, you signed up for that. You do not know or understand what you're signing up for yeah, until you're in it.
1: Yeah. And especially when you're at a really young age, especially when it's not an environment you've ever been exposed to before. Like, you might have an idea of what you're getting yourself into, but you really, really don't. (laughs) And yeah, it's usually not until after the fact that you're like, Okay, now I fully understand.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's chaotic and the hours are insane. And it's Mm -hmm. they want you to be like as crazy as possible. And so they put you in these situations where like there's a lack of sleep and you've been going and like burning at both ends and it's nonstop chaos in order to have these really intense, you know, moments on the show. And it's just so intense. But I think what's interesting about your situation is that when you went on The Bachelor, you were, one, sober by choice, not because you're mm-hmm. an addict, you're an alcoholic. Yeah. And two,
1: you were in school or out of school?
0: For, I had just like, I
1: graduated, graduated in. Just yeah. Yeah. I finished in May 2016, and then we were, we were filming
0: September 2016 such an interesting like so to go on it because I watch reality shows now and as somebody Mm -hmm. who you know I went to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor and obviously I'm really passionate about therapy and mental health and I watch reality shows now and I'm like oh my god okay what I would say to this person and this is what's (laughs) going on with that person and like that like amplifies I feel like the entire situation because you're like oh my god Mm-hmm. I need to like give you all therapy. <laughs> it really takes a lot to set those <laughs> boundaries of like, how yeah, is this helping or is this not? Yeah, and I think I, that's something
1: I definitely struggled with because I a, there was just such a obvious external cry for help uh, by one person in particular, but also several of the women, uh, where you know, being in the show on The Bachelor is the first time that they are, ever being asked to really process their feelings in such an intense, deep way. You know, when we talk with producers, those are, you know, kind of mini therapy sessions. So it definitely brought out a lot of emotions in girls. And, you know, for myself, even I was very overwhelmed, but there were definitely, a, there was, there was a large part of my experience where I was the observer and I wasn't really subjective in the experience. I wasn't really putting myself first. I was looking at what was happening around me and kind of making these observations and, you know, in some ways really bitching and being a pain in the ass to producers of like, this is happening and it should not be happening, but also of, you know, kind of inserting myself where help was somewhat asked for, but wasn't really wanted to where, you know, I definitely kind of shot myself in the foot trying to help people that, didn't really want to be helped, but in my eyes, was like you know, thinking of things of just me being an observer and not really being there to like actually develop this relationship, but just that like there were so many dynamics happening around me that I was like, wow, this is a lot.
0: As a therapist, going into this, and I started with the reality TV thing because I just thought about that before we jumped mm-hmm. on, but I really want to get into your background and your passions and all of that yeah. stuff. But I imagine so as a therapist going into this experience, were you like, holy fuck, I'm about to date a guy (laughs) that's (laughs) going to date 30 other women. And, you know, is this a good idea? And is this healthy? And like, what are my personal boundaries? And like, did you already Mm -hmm. have all that stuff kind of set before you went into the experience?
1: Well, first I would say I didn't go into the experience as a therapist. Mm. So that I think is a really big distinction for people to make. When I went on the show, yes, I was like, I'm about to date a guy who's dating a bunch of other women. But for me, I was like, that doesn't seem much different than what happens in normal life. We just usually don't know about
0: it. So, That's so I, <laughs> true. I mean, I'm not, I, I was just talking to my girlfriend about this the other day. I would not want to be on these dating apps now, like I've been married for eight years, Tinder didn't exist back when I was dating. Yeah. And then that really is happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent.
1: And for me, I <laughs> I intentionally put myself in a position um, shortly before going on the show when I knew I was going to go on the show as a bit of like a practice round for me, where I was talking to this guy who he's now one of like my dear friends. He's a lacrosse player. And we have this big festival here in Seattle called Seafair where like everyone just goes out on yachts and like, it's just this whole party in in the water basically. And his boat was going to be filled with like other like athletes, like NBA guys and all this stuff. And I was like, I know he's inviting other girls and we've kind of like hooked up and hung out a little bit. And like, I know this boat is just going to be filled with girls that like want to get with these athletes. So I was like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to see how I interact with all these other girls who I know, like we're all kind of going for the same guys. And it ended up being a great time. I got two of like one of my close girl, two of my close girlfriends now still to this day from like four years ago when that first happened. And I felt like I came out of it pretty well. And so I was like, yeah, okay. It's like, it won't be much different than that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't to me, it wasn't like, oh, wow, he's going to be dating all these other women. And like, that's going to be like, so strange for me. It was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to have relationships with these women. and I'm going to have a relationship with him and each relationship is going to be different. And it's a social experiment.
0: So yeah going back to the whole you said like oh by helping this person it ended up shooting me in the foot there's always that one in every season who's like mm-hmm. sound the alarms like this is not normal you're day drinking and like wasted mm-hmm. you're crying all day long yeah you seem emotionally unstable and mm-hmm. this you know what i mean so it's almost like this weird thing yeah. where you're almost better off saying nothing which is weird,
1: but, and it's really hard to do that when you're constantly being asked questions about it too. Mm -hmm. And, and the intent is, I think the important piece, like certainly you're responsible for not only your intent, but also your impact, but it's, it's definitely about the delivery and the intent. And I think the delivery, sometimes we don't always have, you know, perfect, which is okay, but there certainly still is an impact that we have to take responsibility for. So, I mean, yeah, you might have the best intent of saying, you know, I'm concerned about you because you seem to be maybe abusing alcohol right now and a little bit emotionally unstable. Like this might be a really hard time for you. And that concerns me, but it might be coming out in a delivery of like, you're unstable and like, you're an alcoholic and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, your intent gets a little lost in that, but you still have that impact of where, you know, that person was made to feel attacked and whatnot. And it definitely might seem like the best route is to just not say anything. And for some people, they can do that. For some people, producers are not constantly asking them what their opinion is of this situation, right? They're, they're being consistently asked questions about their relationship with the lead. And that's what their focus is. I mean, it, it really is it's different for everyone. And yeah, sometimes it, I would I would definitely recommend if you can to, you know, kind of Keep your observations to yourself. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) as I've learned from experience, that can be really difficult to do, especially when you're very opinionated like I am.
0: Yes. The other thing that I think is always really interesting in the show, and I think it probably has to do with, I think the producers probably have somewhat of a say, is it is always the very obnoxious girl who steals the lead over and over and over again in the first couple of episodes that ends up making it pretty far. Yeah. That's just my observation that like they make him keep her or make her keep him. (laughs) I could go either way.
1: I mean, this is what, like, for me going into this, I was thinking of it as like just a real life experiment, you know, like a real life situation. I wasn't thinking of it as like, this is reality TV, but when you're there, yeah, it starts to sink in a bit. And, When you even point out that observation, it's like, yes, because this is also reality TV.
0: Yes. And they have to make millions upon millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the only way they do that is if they keep the show and the franchise really exciting. The last two seasons were like so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do. After my
1: seasons, not to say that you can't still be very entertaining, sober, but after my season, there they implemented some new rules around drinking because there were some issues around drinking on the seasons I was on so I think that definitely played a part in some of the dynamics on the show that you know there was more regulation around alcohol use on the show but um yeah also just you
0: know I think there were very poor leads leads. yeah yeah okay so now we're moving off bachelor that was that was for all of you bachelor fans i'm a newer (laughs) bachelor fan and i'm telling you it's the only reality tv that i can really get behind Mm -hmm. up until the last two seasons but i do now really like bachelor in paradise because i feel like that is more of a real thing Mm -hmm. than the bachelor is now because it's like speed dating it's like you're on an island speed Mm -hmm. dating people and it's not one male and 30 women it's like it's a little bit more balanced and like this could actually turn Mm -hmm. into something. I mean, it's definitely much more practical
1: in terms of developing a relationship. It's definitely more balanced. Um, As someone who left paradise in a relationship, I think it's definitely more conducive to actually establishing a healthy, fulfilling long-term relationship. But in all the shows, it just takes a lot of work. So what, made you want to get into
0: psychology.
1: I would say I mean when I took my first AP psych class and um I say my first like there's several of them that you take there's just one. Um but when I took that it was probably like my sophomore junior year of high school and I was like this class is the best class I've ever taken. This is just like <laughs> the class of life. Like everyone should have to take this. This is fascinating. And, um, you know, growing up, I was always attracted to people that had these layers to them that, you know, came from really broken homes or broken situations or had experienced some level of trauma. You know, when I first started experimenting with drugs and alcohol when I was 12, in uh, middle school, you know, I drank a little bit, realized I didn't really like it, stopped drinking, smoked weed more. Uh, but everyone else around me went down deeper relationship paths with alcohol that ended up to be quite abusive and with other drugs. And I still remained very close to those people and always felt like I wanted to like create this safe space for them to be like, why is this happening? Like why this is not something you have to be doing and you're doing it and you're like numb and you're just trying to numb all this pain, but like, let me hold this space with you. And even then, um, It was a little bit in middle school, but I became much more aware of it in high school where several of my extended family members were, you know, passing away of cirrhosis of the liver and getting cancer from lung cancer from smoking cigarettes. And just seeing that history within my family and seeing how much it tore my family apart entirely was really upsetting to me and just felt like there's no need for this. Like, this is so preventable. Like, why are we doing this? And then taking that psychology class, it just kind of felt like I was so interested in people that had these layers of pain that were using substances for numbing and really wanted to help, however I could. And so once I took that psychology course, I was like, "I'm definitely going to major in psychology and during my bachelor's, um, I did some work doing group counseling with um, substance abuse rehabilitation, and loved that work and knew that like, I was not good with numbers. I didn't want to do research, but decided then to go get my master's in clinical mental health counseling, where I did work in private practice. And as much as I, you know, like shout out to everyone working in community mental health, it's so important and so needed. I definitely was much more passionate about doing work related to vulnerability and shame and more higher functioning type clients. Um, So private practice, was kind of that sweet spot for me. And it's just, I describe it as like, it's the work of life. So it's like, why would I not want to do this? Like, it's just connecting with humans and me helping other people figure out how to help themselves. And it's something that like, feels very grounding to me in a lot of ways. Um,
0: so a lot of things brought me to it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, one, it's really impressive that you had the insight as somebody who began to consume substances the way that other people in your family had. I don't think that's talked about enough. Like how, as children, when we're so Mm -hmm. susceptible to what we witness in our environment impacting our lives, the way that our parents and the adults in our lives consume substances impacts the way that we do in major ways. I mean, I think about, and I have a lot of friends who really party, who think that, you know, their five-year-olds aren't going to remember, you know, but they are.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, (laughs) my mom is, you know, she grew up with her dad who, you know, Abuses alcohol pretty heavily, uh, likely an alcoholic. And she has a very interesting relationship with alcohol that I've observed over the years. And at times, it definitely involves abuse. Um, You know, she's tried to kind of control it at times where she's done things like Dry January and then said she's going to like mindfully consume alcohol. But then she's also gotten into the wine industry where now it's like it's her job. So, like, you know there's a different rationalizing around it but yeah i mean many many of my memories with my mom are around her drinking or you know me being the dd to go pick up my mom and and her girlfriends on their girls nights out and kind of me taking on more of that parental role which you know i think does in a way play a role in how i did respond when i experimented with it in middle school because you know, until I was like seven or eight, my mom was raising me as a single mom. And even then when she got remarried, uh, my stepdad's in the Air Force was in the Air Force. And so he was gone most of the time then as well. And it's so acceptable in our society. You know, there's all
0: these like, you know, it's five o'clock time for a glass of wine, <laughs> like all these things. I know, things. but it's <laughs> not even five o'clock now. It's like, I'm seeing these myths yeah. of like how to tell how your kids can tell time. And then it's like a mimosa at nine and then a Bloody Mary at 11 and then a glass of wine at five. One thing that you're really passionate about talking about is sex. And I love that Mm -hmm. because talking about, I, you know, I believe that. Yeah. Okay. So if we want to bring balance into our lives, like we have to be willing to talk about sex and our sexuality Mm -hmm. more because it's just not being talked about enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, we don't really receive any kind of education around, you know, what uh, healthy drinking habits look like throughout our lives. And we especially don't get healthy education around what, like a good healthy connection with our sexuality looks like either. Um, So yeah, it can be a difficult thing to talk about sometimes because there hasn't been that language established for us. It hasn't been modeled for us. It feels you know, like most of what we have heard about it is that we don't talk about it and that we keep quiet about it and that it's private and it's something we keep to ourselves, which still remains true for some people, but not for everyone. So I, you know, in addition to doing a lot of work around vulnerability and shame in my practice, I also do some sex therapy. So now I'm currently in training uh, to be certified as a sex therapist. And, you know, I think back to my bachelor's and when I took my human sexuality course, and my professor, Dr. Kate Thomas was so just, she was just such a hoot. And I remember just being like, oh, I want to be like her one day. Like I want to do what she does because it just seems like so much fun. And, you know, I kind of, more went down the route of like general mental health counseling because I didn't want to be put in a box of like, I can only do substance abuse or I can only do sex therapy. So I'm so glad that I went down the path I I went down, but sex therapy was always something that I was interested in. And yeah, now that I'm doing this training and my podcast now, let's talk about it, um, covers a lot of human sexuality things. And yeah, I, I love talking about it.
0: I think it's important because it lifts the veil. Like mm-hmm. I remember when the Me Too movement started and I was watching all these women march in the streets. And at the time, I think I Dakota was really little and still nursing. So I was like, I'm, I can't do it. But I was watching this transpire and I was like, well, really there's many different ways that we can start to lift the veil on rape culture, but it has to start with us talking about sex. Mm-hmm. And for yeah. the vast majority of the population, many people are still just not willing to go there because of the mm-hmm. shame yeah. generationally that they have experienced mm-hmm. around the topic.
1: Yeah. No, totally. It's even when people, even like when I start talking with clients around sex therapy, even when they come to me specifically for sex therapy, it is still takes a while to actually get comfortable using the language around sex. You know, if I, if we're talking about blowjobs, if we're talking about orgasm, if we're talking about, um, you know, penetrative sex, right? Like there's all these words that feel kind of difficult to say and kind of shift the tension in the room a little bit because there is so much shame around it just talking about a masturbation as a woman there's a lot of shame around that and a lot of fear around even discussing that as to you know you're going to be viewed as a total slut or you know if something happens to you you're going to have been asking for it because you talked about the fact that you masturbate and really you know a major goal just in sex therapy in general is normalizing and helping clients to understand that there really is no normal when it comes to sex. If it's pleasurable for you and your partner and is not hurting anyone, um, unless that's the kind of thing that's giving you pleasure, uh, (laughs) then, Mm -hmm. then it's healthy, then it's normal. Um, you know, it's going to be different for everyone, but yeah, a lot of sex therapy is working through that shame and destigmatizing a lot of the language and the kinks and the things just around sex.
0: Yeah. As a parent, I've taken a very sex positive approach mm-hmm. to which a lot of family members <laughs> have been like, Are you <laughs> kidding? Mm. And I've taken that approach because, because of my history. I, I think. Had I known at age five when my abuse began that what was happening mm-hmm. to me was a sexual act yeah. and that, you know, that's not appropriate for children mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, I would have been able to voice that. And so there is this very fine line you know, between oversharing and like age appropriate. And so it started for, for my kids with proper terminology. We mm-hmm. only use proper terminology when it comes to our body parts. It's not wee-wee. It's not, you know what I mean, coochie. It's not any of the partner. words that I had, you know. Yeah. We use the real wor- words and they've actually shown in studies that that reduces your child's mm-hmm. risk of being sexually abused. So we started with that. And then we started to talk about red flag feelings. Like when you get that yucky feeling inside, that means you should tell mommy or daddy, you know, and then we started Mm -hmm. talking about secrets that we don't keep secrets. You know, Mm -hmm. what's the difference between a good secret, a surprise party and a bad secret. Mm Once an adult is telling you to keep a secret and it makes you have that red flag feeling. Um, And then now at age six, tomorrow, seven, in the last six months or so, I, as my daughters become more curious. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. another thing that as a society, we don't really talk about the fact that our children are inherently sexual beings, period. Mm -hmm. Like they start exploring their genitals around age 18 months to two years old. And that is totally normal. It's okay. If it makes you feel uncomfortable to talk about sex with your
1: child. Uh, but also know that like that's signaling that it's important that you do, um, is extra important that you do, because if it is something that makes you feel this significant discomfort, it's letting you know that there's, that there's potentially some issues that you have around it, even just in your own comfort with sex and and your own sexuality. But also that that could be something that you're then going to project onto your child as well. So being aware of that discomfort is a first step. And then, you know, kind of working through that to have those conversations with your children, because yeah, I mean, children are so curious and it's better if we give them the tools and the education and the knowledge to understand what's going on in their own bodies than it is to just be like, don't do
0: it. That's bad. Statistically, if you get the don't do it, you know, the abstinence based model, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to have end up with teen pregnancies because you didn't understand that penetrative sex Mm -hmm. leads to pregnancy very easily. Um, Not only that, but you're more likely to be abused in childhood. So it's so important. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we know the statistics that One in four women, and I think it's one in seven boys, that could be an out-of-date statistic, Mm -hmm. have incurred um, sexual abuse in Mm -hmm. their lifetime. And so healing from that, from the shame, from the experience and navigating and figuring out your sexual preferences after that type Mm -hmm. of experience with a therapist is some of the most important work that you can do because you deserve to have a fulfilling, incredible sex life after abuse.
1: Yeah. And I would definitely say, I mean, well, first, if you hear purring on my audio, I apologize. It's my cat on my lap. Uh, But (laughs) that if you are looking to do some of that work, that it is going to be incredibly important that you do seek a therapist who specifically has training in sex therapy. You know, it kind of goes one of two ways where, you know, in a in your basic, you know, psychology degree and your basic counseling degree, you have one course on human sexuality. There is no training, like explicit training. Yeah. Yeah. I literally had one course in my undergrad and oh my one God. course in my graduate program. So it is very important to look for someone who is asex certified or who is, um, I think the other one is S star, star certified. But ask that therapist specifically what their training is in it because either you'll have people who aren't talking about sex at all because it's not something that's been in their training. um, And then that topic never gets covered for you or you have people who have no training in it still and are treating you as if they do. So definitely don't feel like, don't hesitate to ask that person on a consultation call, um, or in an email, you know, do you have specific training around sex therapy? Uh, because that I think will definitely be important to your treatment around, you know, healing of, of sexual abuse.
0: God, that's just incredible to me that there's not with the amount of people who incur abuse that therapists are not receiving more training in yeah. that area. It I mean, even mind blowing, even,
1: even in like a, if you have someone that's a LMFT, a licensed marriage and family therapist, mm-hmm. they still, they'll have like one, maybe two courses on sexuality. Um, and it's a huge part of, you know, marriage and family relationships. So yes. a lot of people have to go for this extra certification, sex therapy, um, or you find people who are, doctors of human sexuality, which is also helpful. So, uh, definitely just be specific in the title that you're looking for to make sure that that person actually has significant training to be able to help you
0: with that kind of counseling. It takes guts to just be like, okay, I'm going to start a podcast and we're going to talk about intimacy and sex and like mm-hmm. all of the things that people don't want to talk about. So <laughs> yeah. how did how did that kind of come about? Well, first, I mean, kind of started from my Instagram because,
1: you know, these conversations first were starting there where someone would say something, let's say about privilege, right? We'll talk about white privilege. Mm. Um, I have a whole highlight on my page going through white privilege, you know, talking about monogamy, again, a topic that I discussed on there. And there's only so many stories you can post before it's like obnoxious, right? And like, there's just too many stories up. (laughs) And so I was like, I want to continue these conversations. And I have these conversations in my day-to-day life and how cool would it be to just be able to record them and then just share them with other people and then just continue the conversations everywhere. So for me, I'm definitely someone that likes to put myself in uncomfortable situations and you know, have these Uncomfortable conversations. If it seems taboo, and someone's like, "You shouldn't talk about it," I'm like, "But why?" Like, I want to talk about it even more now. So, like, (laughs) let's talk about it. Uh, So cheesy, but um, but yeah, the podcast kind of started off with more mental health. I wanted to use it as a platform to help share other people's stories around mental health, to let other people know that they're not alone, but also to provide some kind of education and you know information around uh, different psychological disorders and just different ways that people experience and cope with their struggles in mental health. And, you know, there's definitely some episodes where I get a little more personal, and it's kind of a way for me to, in an unfiltered, unedited way, opposite of the show that people were able to get to know me a little bit more. And now after a hundred episodes, it's transitioned to be much more focused on not just mental, but also sexual health. So as I go through my own training with sex therapy and my own personal experience with my sexuality, I've extended that into the podcast as well to cover more sexual health topics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can't really, I don't think as a society, as a culture, as a planet that we can really heal until we have these tough conversations mm-hmm. around sexuality, around privilege, around trauma, around mm-hmm. generational trauma, around dysfunction, around all of these things. We cannot yeah. heal until we really start to look at these things because it, it allows us to develop empathy mm-hmm. towards other people when Definitely. we hear their stories. And when we have people who are helping us, I guess, question everything that we thought that Mm -hmm. we've known. Yeah. And that's actually like a
1: thing I get a lot of like, you know, don't try to fix what's not broken. And I'm like, it might not be broken for you, but for other people it is. And just because something has served a function in our society for so long doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask why. Like, what function is this serving? And is does this still serve a function? I mean, when I talk about monogamy and everything, it's people bring that up a lot of like, you know, this has been working for like decades and like the, we have a reason yeah. why we do this. Like it has doesn't it need been? to be messed with and doesn't need to be talked about. And I'm like, but no, but clearly it does though. Because when you look yeah. at divorce rates
0: and all this other stuff where I'm like, No, like these are still important things to When half of married people are getting divorced, that's a red flag, okay? That something is going on, you know? Definitely. Well, with that, thank you so much. And I hate saying this at the end, but I always do. And it will be in the show notes for anyone who wants to find this. But Mm -hmm. um, where can everyone follow along? And where can everybody listen to the podcast?
1: Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Tay T-A-Y-M-O-C-H-A. And I have all the links in my bio for things like counseling, um, things like the podcast, things like vibrators for a discount, which is always super fun and exciting and helpful. And then the podcast you can find on any of your favorite podcast platforms. It's called let's talk about it with Taylor Nolan, And there's also an Instagram page for the podcast called let's talk about it underscore podcast, and you can kind of keep up with it there. And yeah, that's pretty much the two main places to find me Instagram. And I guess another Instagram.
0: This week's affirmation is I work well under pressure and always feel motivated. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at recoveringfromreality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com.